For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at kind of a big section here. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through chapter 6. So we're going to press on into the next chapter. Now, you got to keep in mind that whenever you read the Bible, those chapter divisions are often put in there, you know, synthetically. And so sometimes we have to kind of ignore that and think about it in terms of the uh, thought progression. Now, we want to look at this section, and I entitled it Divide and Conquer, which I think encapsulates what was going on in this scene here, where God's enemy was relentlessly attacking the early church. Let's read in verse 12. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But we're told no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. So these people were witnessing the disciples perform miraculous signs and wonders. And also they were listening to the apostles teaching as they spoke about the word of God. And this had two interesting uh, and yet opposite results among the people. Some were told didn't even dare to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Remember, they were performing all of these miracles and wonders and also taking care of the poor. So many people at this time were looking upon the work that these apostles were doing, and they couldn't deny that God was working through them. And yet some of them didn't want to join them, even though they regarded these guys highly. And it might have been because of fear that if they joined up with these guys, that they probably would encounter some persecution, like we saw in uh, the last chapter that we studied. And yet there were others who weren't afraid. We're told more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. So some disregarded any fears that they had and decided they were going to join up with the disciples and they actually came to faith in Christ. Now, I think it's interesting because whenever God's presence is shown to the world, either through miraculous signs or through the public teaching of his written word, I think that it has a polarizing effect on people. Some, in some cases, it causes people to flee, uh, to run away, and in other cases, it draws people to faith. And so... The word of God, the presence of God can actually have a polarizing effect on people. That's why we see that some didn't even want to join along with these guys, whereas some uh, decided that they were going to join in regardless of the consequences. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Now, it's not clear that each person who was underneath Peter's shadow was healed. Luke just tells us that they were doing this. And it might have been superstitious, but we also know that in the Gospels, there were people who were longing just to touch Jesus because they knew that he possessed incredible spiritual power. 
For example, the woman with the uh, 12-year hemorrhage, you know, she just touched Jesus' cloak and was healed. And so it's likely that the apostles were demonstrating such great spiritual power that people were drawn to them. We're told crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing all their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night and opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. Then he told him, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So he says, go back in there. I want you to preach the message of Christ. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, or in some translations, the Sanhedrin, which is the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. And so they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, nobody was even there. And when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then some arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went with, this, with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. So apparently the apostles had curried so much favor with the people that the religious authorities were afraid to harm these guys in public because they knew that it could actually cause the crowds to turn against them. And so, like, you know, the mom who has disobedient children at the supermarket, they were like, wait until we get to the high council. You're going to get it. They didn't want to do it in public, though. Well, then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. And they said, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on the cross. So the leaders of the high council reminded the apostles that they were not supposed to go around the city teaching in the name of Jesus. And the apostles reminded the high council that they weren't going to listen. They were like, we're not going to listen to you. We told you that before. And they proceeded to explain the message of Christ to these guys again. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on the cross. Now remember, the people who were part of this council were probably Annas and Caiaphas, who were guys that we read about last time we were together when they confronted Peter and the other apostles for speaking the news of Jesus Christ. But these guys were also at Jesus' trial, the ones who were complicit in crucifying Jesus. They were the ones who actually handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. Then he says, God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. So Peter really gets to the point and gives these guys the heart of the message of Christianity. 
Namely, that Jesus came and did what we could not do for ourselves. That he paid the death penalty so that we might escape death. You know, some of us might be confused why Christians celebrate the death of a man 2,000 years ago. Well, that wasn't just some death that occurred. The Bible teaches that Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty that we all deserve to pay. And that simply by turning to him and repenting of our sins, we might be forgiven. Now, that term repent might be a little bit strange to some of us. We might be uh, familiar with it, but we don't understand what it means. Repent simply means to have a change of mind or to change your course. You know, some of us are on this self-salvation project where we want to try to do good things, to please God, to try to make it into heaven. But the Bible says that there's no amount of good works that we can ever do to erase our guilty status before God, that it simply requires what Jesus has done on the cross. And if we admit humbly that we want what Jesus offers us, then we can be forgiven, according to Peter. Well, when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent out outside the council chamber for a while. He's like, look, I want to talk to you guys. Let's send these guys out. And so he convenes with the council. This guy Gamaliel actually um, shows up in extra-biblical documents. If you read the Jewish text, the Talmud, this guy was regarded by people at the time as being a scholar in the Jewish law, and he was also regarded as very wise. So he was well-respected. We actually hear about him later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, because it turns out this guy Gamaliel discipled and taught who will uh, be introduced to in a few weeks, the Apostle Paul. And so Gamaliel decides that he's going to try to give these guys some wisdom about what to do with these apostles, these guys who are going around teaching in the name of Christ. He said to his colleagues, he said, Men of Israel, take care of what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow, Thutis, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all of his followers went in their various ways. And the whole movement came to nothing. And he says, after him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and his followers were scattered. Now, if you read Josephus, the ancient historian, reliable uh, in his account of this time period, he said that after Herod the Great died, that there were thousands of uprisings that broke out in this region. And he actually documents this one right here, Judas of Galilee. And it corroborates what Luke says. And so I think it's interesting because people, critics of the Bible, have argued that Luke's history in the book of Acts has tons of errors in it. And yet when we compare it with extra-biblical documents, other historians, it seems to corroborate what we read about. Well, anyway, Gamaliel says, this is my advice. Leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning to do these things merely on their own, it's soon going to be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even find yourself fighting against God. 
pretty wise, I think, uh, advice that he's giving here. And yet, I'm not sure that you can hold this as true in all cases. I mean, you think about how God eventually will triumph, but we know that in some cases, evil plans do succeed. And some plans that are uh, hatched considering the will of God sometimes fail. And so I'm not sure that this is a reliable index of how we should go about doing things, but uh, either way, it saves the uh, disciples from getting killed. Well, the others accepted this advice. They called in the apostles and had them flocked. They ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. And so luckily, these guys ended, ended up walking out of this with a flogging. Now, according to the Old Testament law, Whenever somebody committed a crime, they were to be flogged, but they were to be flogged to an extent where they weren't killed. And so the Jewish people of this time believed that 40 lashes could kill you. And so they decided, we're, we're not going to hit the maximum, we're just going to do 40 minus 1. And so they would flog these guys 39 times, which was pretty savage. Well, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Surprising. I mean, I think if I was walking out of there, my back lacerated, bleeding, I'd been unjustly brought into this trial, nearly uh, escaped death, I think I'd be doing a little bit of whining. I whined for a lot less than that. You know, I'd be like, oh, man, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Oh, you know, and the apostles, though, have a completely different perspective. They start rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer the disgrace for the name of Jesus. We need to keep in mind that Jesus predict, predicted early on in his ministry that these guys would face persecution. And that when they face persecution, that they should rejoice. We know that from the Sermon on the Mount. And so they were essentially carrying out what Jesus told them to do. Not to mention, by this time, they probably realized that God could take incredible tragedy and injustice and use it for good, not only in their lives, but in the lives of the people around them. After all, they saw Jesus crucified, their Savior, and they were left wondering, why would God do this? How could God lose control of the situation and yet it turned out to be the greatest redemptive, redemptive act in all of human history? And so they must have been certain that God could use this in a powerful way. And we're told in verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house they continue to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. So they came out of this undeterred, and it even strengthened their resolve to preach the message of Christ. Now, <clears throat> Satan's ploy to destroy the church here through persecution failed in this case. He's relentless in his pursuit. We see that he's never given up on this tactic to destroy the church. In the following five centuries after the early church, we know that countless uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians were beaten, murdered, their families intimidated. Many of their properties and their businesses were seized. And so Satan has never given up on this tactic. 
In fact, we, we find in the modern day, many Christians today, probably in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, living in countries dominated by Hinduism or Islam, who don't enjoy the kind of religious tolerance that we experience here today. In fact, many of them live in secret, feeling intimidated to share their faith because of the persecution they know they would face. Not to mention, if you look 50, 60 years earlier in our history, that communism was responsible for untold millions of people, Christians, losing their life because of their faith. And so Satan has never given up on this. Even though he failed in this one case, he knows that it's an effective tactic to discourage and possibly destroy small communities of, of Christ followers. And yet, it's amazing that even though Satan has thrown the kitchen sink at the Christian faith and, and local communities, that the church has emerged from that and has actually grown incredibly. The third century Christian uh, uh, early church father, Tertullian, says this. He says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. And so somehow persecution possesses a refining effect where it separates those who are intent on truly following God, not because of the benefits that they get from it because they truly love God and want to follow him, and it separates them out from those who are just around for the benefits, who are here just because it's a social club. Not to mention, uh, God can use persecution as a model to other people watching to pique interest in Christianity. Why are these guys willing to die for this? There must be something to it. Well, we read in Acts chapter 6 that even though Satan was unsuccessful in destroying the early church, that his next tactic in trying to destroy the church was the cleverest, really, of the three tactics that he's put forward up to this point in the book of Acts. You know, he was unsuccessful in, in trying to persecute the church. That he was unsuccessful in trying to infiltrate the church. And that he was unsuccessful in trying to corrupt the church. And now, what he aims to do is to try to divide the church. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there was rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So something a little bit more subtle. We're told that there was a complaint that arose. And apparently, within this early church community, it was comprised of people who were both, they were from either a Jewish background that was more... Uh, had sort of uh, Greek cultural elements. And then you had another group that identified more with Hebrew culture. And so these two groups saw themselves as two separate entities within the church. And so because there was so much poverty in the early church, the apostles decided that they were going to put together a feeding program and apparently, some of the Greek-speaking believers noticed that 
preferential treatment was being given to the Hebrew-speaking believers. Now, we know that in the ancient world, they didn't have the kind of social services we have today. So if a woman who is typically uneducated and untrained, if her husband died, that most certainly meant that she would experience financial disaster. In many of those cases, those women would turn to prostitution. And so the church took it upon itself to try to meet the needs of these poor women. And uh, really, this is at the heart of what God wants for the church. We read in Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, not like an extraterrestrial, but like a foreigner, right? Giving him food and clothing. People who would be naturally shunned. Also, we're told in James 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So the apostles knew that this was at the heart of what God wanted, to watch out for these people who were vulnerable in their society. And so they decided to put together this feeding program. I already explained this part here, the Hebrew-speaking believers and Hebrew uh, Greek-speaking believers. Uh, One thing, though, is that there are a number of factors in this division. First of all, there was the cultural superiority that the Hebrew-speaking believers had toward the Greek-speaking believers. Now, Judaism was spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, and some Jewish people decided they were going to cloister themselves and try to keep out all of the culture that they were a part of. And so... They identified themselves more with Hebrew culture and spoke Aramaic. Whereas there were other Jewish people who identified more with the culture and they were more open to it. And so the Greek-speaking believers viewed the Hebrew-speaking believers as, you know, sort of outdated, conservative Whereas the Hebrew-speaking believers felt like the Greeks were more liberal, that they were just accepting of culture, which corrupted them. And so there was this division among them. And even though they both came to Christ, both groups came to Christ, apparently that did not erase the division that they felt among themselves. Secondly, I think that this was also related to the poor administration of this feeding program that they put up, they put together. You know, it's interesting to note that Luke never says that the apostles were intentionally overlooking the needs of the Greek-speaking believers, but that a complaint arose. So there was a perception that preferential treatment was being given to the Hebrew-speaking believers. And we, we know that a lot of these accusations were probably targeted against the apostles. We read this in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. There were no needy people among them because people who owned land and houses would sell them and they would bring the money to the apostles and give it to those in need. So apparently, the money that was being given to the poor was funneled through the, the apostles and the apostles would distribute that to the people. And so... It might be that the apostles, because they were so preoccupied with teaching people the Bible and equipping people, that they weren't really doing a great job with this feeding program. And so some people felt slighted by that. 
Now, I think it's important for us to think about this, this area of division because that's what we see happening here, that there's a fracture within the early church and that Satan uses this tactic even today. You know, Satan, he's probably a student of military warfare. Um, one of the easiest and most effective tactics in military warfare is what you call divide and conquer. And what you do is if a general is able to split the enemy forces, he can defeat the, each force in detail. Where what he does is he aims his forces against these smaller armies instead of trying to face uh, an entire army with full force. And so likewise, Satan tries to divide the body of Christ, tries to create factions, arguments, because he knows that when we preoccupy ourselves with fighting with one another, that it neutralizes our effectiveness in being able to carry out the mission that God has given to us. You know, when we talk about division, there are really two types of division. The first would be what you might call passive division. So this isn't where you're actively fighting with people, but uh, more that you're withdrawing from healthy relationships. You know, you just keep at arm's length. You stay aloof from people. And you're not, you know, going around gossiping or slandering people, but you're not opening up about your life, about the issues that you're experiencing. And that's exactly where Satan wants us to be to be at arm's length from one another. Because he knows that if we open about, up about that struggle we have, we're, we're, we're going to experience healing, and he doesn't want to see that. He wants to make sure that Christianity, that our experience of it is as boring as possible. That way we don't get any bright ideas about devoting our lives to serving Christ. And so that's one of the ways that he tries to draw people away from each other is just through withdrawal. And really, you don't have to do anything in order for this to happen. It happens naturally. And so it's really a lack of investment that leads to pass passive division. Secondly, there's really no outward hostility. You know, people aren't, you know, flipping tables or spitting in each other's face. It's just that we don't really care about each other that we don't spend time with each other, that we're not opening up about our lives. On the other hand, you might have what you call active division. In active division, people seem noticeably divided and bitter toward one another. You know, a conflict breaks out and people decide, I'm not going to resolve that. I'm not going to move toward them. Because in conflict, it requires humility to move toward resolution. And so when bitterness creeps into the body of Christ, it really has a devastating effect because it puts a real chill on a lot of the relationships. And people who may not even be that involved will notice that something's different about this group. You know, as division springs up in this group, people will notice, okay, the last time I visited this group, it seemed like people really cared about one another. It was really warm, but now it seems like people are very distant. Something's wrong. In active division, Satan plants accusations in our minds against one another. Oh, yeah. You know, 
when we hear somebody say something or when we watch them do something, it's easy for us to try to attach motives to that or to try to attach an intention behind it. And it's interesting because some people seem to be more susceptible to these accusations against other Christians than others. They, they seem to, to be completely clueless that Satan may actually have a role in the accusations that they're hearing. And so often what they do is they go around and they slander and they gossip. And what happens is within the body of Christ, factions start to form. Now, when we talk about division, let's talk about what, we're, what we don't mean. First of all, we're not talking about healthy disagreement. I think that's normal. I think it's good for there to be disagreement. Of course, you know, there are certain things that as Christians define us, certain things that we believe, such as Jesus' substitutionary death or Jesus' bodily resurrection. Those two things are really foundations of the Christian life. And so in those cases, we might have to divide over that. But there are a lot of other things that aren't as important, non-essential things that we might disagree about, stuff like eternal security or our view of end times. And we might disagree about those things, but it doesn't mean that we need to split over it. And so you should see healthy disagreement crop up within a healthy body of Christ. And I think the other factor here, too, is that, you know, God gives us tons of freedom and flexibility in the way that we express the Christian life. You know, Christianity isn't anti-cultural. It's not, it's not the type of religion or worldview that comes into a culture and either dominates or destroys that culture, contrary to popular belief. It's actually compatible with culture. And so... The way Christianity looks, for instance, in Zimbabwe is going to look totally different than it does in Canada. Probably a lot cooler. And so, you know, we're, we're not looking for uniformity here. There's going to be some diversity. You know, I think that some disagreement should be tolerated and even in some cases encouraged. You have to wonder if everybody has the same view about everything that maybe some sort of group thing might be forming. You know, you see that in cult groups all the time where people are not allowed to ask any questions. People are not allowed to um, argue or disagree about things. And so I think in a healthy body of Christ, there should be some, some dialogue, some disagreement, but that it needs to be done with respect and love. Secondly, it doesn't mean organizational diversity. What I mean by that is there are some critics of the Bible who say, well, how can we believe the Bible anyway? I mean, Christians can't even agree with themselves about what it means. And so there are tons of denominations scattered all over the world. Uh, how is it even possible for us to understand what the Bible says? I would argue that having different denominations and organizational diversity is actually a good thing. I mean, think about the first thousand years of Christian history when there was only one church. That wasn't that good. That led to the Inquisition and the Crusades. Secondly, I think that when you look at different groups, God has, I think, uh, given us different groups of Christians to reach different kinds of people. 
You know, I think about some churches and they prefer having, you know, singing worship at their meetings. I don't know if you uh, have overlooked that here. We, we don't have like singing worship or corporate singing before our meetings. And some Christians are bothered by that. They're like, man, I, I really want something where, you know, a service where I can, I can sing and, and uh, praise God through uh, corporate singing. You know, we don't do that partly because uh, we feel like when a person who doesn't regard themselves as a Christian comes to one of our meetings, we don't want them to feel awkward and have to stand up and sing about a God they don't actually believe in. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with singing, but that's just the route that we've decided to take. And so some people might come here and feel like, well, that's just not really what I want. And I think that's okay. There are plenty of Bible-centered churches in Columbus that you can go to that are going to be good if this isn't for you. I remember as a, um, a young Christian, I, uh, somebody brought me to another campus Bible study, and it was at someone's home, and I remember walking in there, and uh, people you know, had their acoustic guitar out singing Christian songs. You know, everybody was uh, real straight-laced, real clean-cut, had bright smiles. I was coming from a pretty rough background. You know, I had a lot of problems. I'd been to jail. I smoked cigarettes. I drank. Curse words just dribbled out of my mouth constantly. I just, you know, they, they were nice people. They seemed really cool, but I just didn't feel like I could relate to them. You know, because I wasn't like this clean-cut, clean-living kind of person. I had a lot of problems. I feel much more at home with people like you. No offense. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's a good thing. I don't think it should be regarded as a negative. Now, some of the devastating effects of division might be, first of all, a loss of authentic fellowship. I think that's one of the, the real tragedies of division is that you lose the potent effect of love that people can witness, that they can see within a Christian community. Secondly, I think gossip, slander, and factions start to arise. That's another devastating effect where people will will take a story and maybe even embellish it or leave out relevant details, key details in understanding what the intent was and start to spread these stories, and it's like wildfire that can ravage an entire church. I've seen it happen before. You know, a lot of times it's people will, will swallow down a story like that whole without ever asking any questions. I remember, um, you know, a brother came up to me one time and said, man, can you believe so-and-so said this thing to this person over here? And uh, they were just morally indignant, just pissed about it. And I was like, well, did you, where'd you hear that from? They're like, well, you know, from that person, so-and-so. They're like, well, did you ask the other person their side of the story? Like, well, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. And be like, I'm sure that they're leaving out other parts of the story, other details. And yet they were going around spreading this story uh, as though it was true. And that can cause a lot of damage. It can be very disruptive, very dangerous as factions arise. Third, the body of Christ loses its attractiveness. 
Now, Jesus promises in John chapter 13, verse 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by all this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says that, you know, when people get around the warm fire of the body of Christ, they sense the love that we have for one another, it's going to draw people closer to God. And when we have divisions, when we have bitterness, when we have unresolved conflict, tearing down that kind of love and unity, we no longer become this light to, to the dark world that we live in, as Jesus promised. Fourth, it can wipe out an entire spiritual community. You know, the, the effects of this can be just completely devastating. I've, I've, uh, I remember... A number of years ago, a, friend, a few uh, friends and I went to uh, this place in Kentucky to visit uh, some churches, and uh, we had read that there was this large, like, 10,000-person church, and so we decided to go to one of their Sunday morning services, and when we showed up in this huge stadium-style auditorium, there was, like, maybe 400 people there. Even though the, the auditorium looked like it could fit 3,000 people. And after the service, we started talking to some of the people there, and we were like, you know, is this just one of the, the smaller uh, services? And they were like, no, this is probably where the majority of people go to in this church. And so we said, what happened? We thought that there was 10,000 people there. And they were like, well... Just about a year ago, we went through a pretty nasty division, and the majority of our people left over it. And so it ravaged, division ravaged that church. And we've seen this even within our own fellowship. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a division that cropped up for a number of different factors. And eventually, it led to a third of the people in our church leaving our church. And uh, you talk to people who were around during that time, and you ask them to describe what it was like. They were like, you know, it's amazing. These people who I had known for 15, 20 years, who led me to Christ, my closest friends, you couldn't tell if they were your friends or your enemy. And so we need to let this sink in, to realize this can, this can ravage what God is doing here. We need to be careful. Well, in verse 2, Luke explains the resolution that the apostles came to. So the 12 came to a meeting of the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. So they realized, probably because God's spirit had given them wisdom, that they couldn't go on trying to administrate this food program while still teaching the word of God. And so they decided that they were going to set up a leadership team to do this work. The brothers, he said, they said, and so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. You wonder if what Satan was trying to do here was to create a division and to get the disciples preoccupied with this food program instead of really equipping the believers 
leaving them vulnerable to false teaching. A brilliant plan. And yet the apostles counter with this great idea that came directly from God. We're told uh, they appointed spiritual leadership. And I think, you know, good leadership safeguards against division because spiritual leaders have the diplomacy skills to be able to try to, to mend conflict within the body of Christ. And I think having a strong direction and vision for where the church is heading clarifies a lot of the confusion that can lead to division. Uh, we're told that they were to select seven men. If you look at the New International Version, it says, choose seven men from among you, which I think that's actually very interesting because it points to uh, this concept of indigenous leadership, where they selected people who are right there within their own community. Now, if you look at the American church today, it's, it's very different from this. In most churches today, people will import pastors and leaders from other churches, or they'll get seminary grads, who in some cases have never led a church at all. All they know are books. And often they're put in this position to lead these people who they don't know, and the people are expected to trust this person. Even though they've never seen them before, they've never uh, watched them serve. In this case, they wanted to make sure that the people in this group saw with their own eyes, we can trust these guys. We can trust them because we've seen them lay down their lives for us. Also, we're told that there were seven of them, which points to plurality in leadership. As the old saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why in our fellowship, we make sure that on all levels, whether it's the top of our leadership to uh, home, church, uh, home churches and leadership of, of those groups, that there's plurality in leadership. And it's a little bit frustrating working in a team because you want to get your ideas through and not have to argue with people about it, but I think it's really healthy to have this kind of accountability for people to put you in check if you're, if you're going, uh, you know, on your own way and, and uh, refusing to listen to people. And so plurality is very healthy. It, account, it creates checks and balances that we need. Also, we're told that these guys were well-respected, meaning that they had a proven record of serving love. You know, when you see somebody lay down their lives for other people, you respect that person. You trust them. And, you know, for a lot of us, it's hard to earn our respect. It's hard to forge trust with people. And so... Having somebody that you've seen for years sacrifice and love other people, those are the kind of people you want, that they're well-respected. Also, that they're full of the Holy Spirit, which means that they're under God's leadership and sensitive to his direction. You know, some of us aspire to leadership, but, you know, we're doing it for the wrong reason. We want to try to lead people to ourselves. But that's not what spiritual leadership's about. God doesn't want us... To, to try to, to gain minions to do our bidding. He wants us to try to lead people to him, to follow his leadership. And so it implies that these guys were sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his direction and also knowledgeable in the word. Also that they were wise. 
which means that they were able to apply their knowledge of God's word to situations. Then we're told everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who we will read about next week. Philip, who is also a notable guy. This guy actually opened up an entire new field uh, to the gospel. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert of the Jewish faith. Now, I think it's intriguing that most of these names look Hellenistic. It might be that the apostles actually chose people from the Greek-speaking uh, group in order to avoid the accusation that they were showing uh, preferential treatment to the Hebrew-speaking Jews. Also, they chose highly gifted and spiritually mature individuals to carry out this task. These guys weren't just you know people who were administrative geniuses. They also had the right values. Their heart was in the right place. They had the heart of God, as we'll see. And that's really important. And so finally, we see that the result is that God's message continued to spread, and the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. And there you have it. Now, let's try to summarize all the stuff that we talked about. We we covered a lot here. Like I don't know how many verses, like uh, 40-something verses. The first thing is, uh, Satan seeks to discourage and defeat us through persecution. And some of us are in the throes of this right now, where after receiving Christ, we were so excited to share this with our family and friends and find ourselves shocked that our family and friends aren't more accepting of our faith and even mock us for it. And so... Some of us feel defeated. Some of us feel discouraged. And we have to remember that, you know, God can use this in your life. And we shouldn't quit. We shouldn't give up. But if we endure, he can use this in an incredible way, not only to shape our character, but also to affect many other people. Secondly, Satan also seeks to destroy unity by tempting us to turn against one another. And we need to really watch this because it's very dangerous. You know, if you're sitting here tonight and you've got unresolved conflict or you're harboring bitterness towards somebody else in your group, do us all a favor. Resolve that conflict because you're endangering all of us. And so we need to take this seriously. We need to consider, too, how our words impact people. Some of us uh, say whatever we want, we're outspoken, we pride ourselves in doing that, and yet we don't realize that our words are are, uh, cutting people like a dagger. You know, I think about things that people have said to me in anger. You know, I can recall things that people have said to me even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I'll never forget them. You need to remember, if you throw your words around casually, that um, it can have an effect that you don't realize. So we need to be careful how we speak, and we need to make sure that we are preserving the unity of the Spirit that God has given to us. Yeah, Lord, um, we live in 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 a world and really a country that's just so divided. 
And, um, you know, we pray that uh, we would be different than the world, that we would be um, a beacon of light uh, to the world that, you know, just uh, feels maybe discouraged or just uh, feels like it's impossible to have real unity. I pray that they would be able to see that through Christ. And um, pray, too, for our community here, Lord, this uh, body of Christ that you've given to us. I pray that we can uh, be careful in the way that we speak to one another and that we would uh, be diligent to uh, preserve unity and also resolve any conflicts that arise in our, in our lives. I pray especially um, that uh, we could head this off Whenever a foreign thought enters our mind about somebody else, an accusation, I pray that we can learn to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And uh, if we are confused or if we've bought into it, I pray that you'd send people into our lives to help, um, help us see that we are buying into lies and that uh, maybe your enemy is trying to sow division within our ranks. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.